0: Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you, and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebezuzites, I don't know how you say its name, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take away sickness from among you. None shall, carry, mis, none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites, from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you.
1: Well, this past uh, Friday night, I attended a volleyball game right down the hall here at Loudoun Valley High School. Uh, And as is the case with most every public sporting event in this country, we we stood and observed the performance of the national anthem before the first whistle. Uh, Everyone got to their feet. People took off their hats as a sign of respect. Many placed their hands over their hearts. And there was a moment of solidarity and unity between different fan bases as we came together in honor of the United States. And and this love for country, this allegiance to one nation, is not unique to the U.S., is it? So, citizens of countries around the world use songs and anthems and flags and traditions to show their loyalty to, their love for, their allegiance to, their home nation. Even in our own church family, we are not comprised of only Americans. Uh, Within our church family, we pledge allegiance to different lands, but there is an allegiance that unites us, isn't there? In the passage Carla just read for us, God commands his people to pledge allegiance to him, to him alone. See, as Christians, we we love our various nations. We have patriotism. But what unites us as a church, regardless of what nation we live in, is a greater allegiance, a deeper allegiance to God, a God above all others, to live for his glory. That's what Israel continues to understand this morning in the passage we just read. So this morning we continue on in our study in the book of Exodus, God has led Israel, his people, out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them out into the wilderness by these great signs and wonders. And now at Mount Sinai, where we've been for the past several chapters and will be for the rest of Exodus, he enters into covenant with his people. As their king, he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments. And last week, we kind of We're done with the Ten Commandments and and kind of entered into instructions laid out for God, by God, for Moses to then communicate to Israel. And those instructions, starting back in chapter 20, verse 22, and then continuing on into our passage this morning, is called the Book of the Covenant. And and today we pretty much wrap up the, the final section of this Book of the Covenant. And in this final section, God, or, or Yahweh, the personal name for God in Exodus, which means he's self-existent and he keeps his covenant. This is a, a special name between God and his people. Yahweh points them to the future, to the promised land that he's going to give them. And so as they enter into covenant with Yahweh, as they journey on towards this land called Canaan, he reminds them here that they must Serve him alone. So, three points from this passage this morning. Three things God does for his people. First, God guides. God guides. Second, God conquers. God conquers. And third, God commands. God commands. So, first, God guides. There in verse 20, he says to Moses, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. You may remember we've seen angels before in Exodus. So back in chapter three, uh, Moses is a shepherd. He's 80 years old. He's a shepherd in Midian and he sees a burning bush, right? And do you remember who appears to him out of the bush? Chapter 3, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Again, in chapter 14, at that remarkable deliverance from the Red Sea, Israel is, remember, hemmed in, rock between a rock and a hard place. They're between the Red Sea, which they cannot cross, and, and Pharaoh's oncoming armies. And how does God provide help? Chapter 14, verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So the angel of the Lord is, is kind of reappearing all throughout this book. But who is he? What is he? I mean, he, he he appears to Moses out of the burning bush, but But still, in chapter 3, we see that Moses talks to God in the burning bush, not merely his angel. Here in Exodus 23, this angel is sent by God, and yet God says his name is in him. He says the angel has the ability to pardon transgressions. How does this angel relate to God? I mean... They do seem very intricately connected. Um, I read some people on this this past week, and I'll just let you know, people who love God and love the Bible differ a lot on who this angel is. It, it seems, though, that it's obvious he's no mere man. So some people have said he's Moses. No, he's no mere man. Uh, it also seems obvious he isn't the very full expression of the nature of God. God sends him. He's, he's separate in a way. The Hebrew word for angel there means messenger or representative. So I think even though we don't have a fully defined understanding of this being, we do know the most important things about him. He is sent by God. He is indwelt by the name of God. And he must be obeyed. Yahweh says there in verse 21 of chapter 23, pay careful attention to him, the angel. Obey his voice, for he will not pardon your transgression. So I think, just to wrap that up, I think the best way to perceive this angel's nature is to see him as a representative presence of Yahweh among his people. He's present, God is present in this angel to guide and lead his people into the promised land. So Ligan Duncan says, that angel's presence is reflective of and an extension of the Lord's own presence. God is in your midst, Israel. My own angel is with you. I am with you. I wonder, dear church, do you hear hints of Christ there? God's presence dwelling with his people in a veiled way. Duncan and many other scholars rightly see here a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus. God with man. God's presence with sinners. The Old Testament often gives us sort of an overture of the gospel, doesn't it? So an overture is a, in a work of music, often contains themes that will be expressed and pronounced more clearly later on in the music. And in the Old Testament, we get an, and sort of overture, an overture that has this ever increasing crescendo that at first whispers and then, and then speaks and then finally shouts throughout the Old Testament, Christ, 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 God is going to come and be with his people. Church, we see here, Israel is not alone in the wilderness. God promises to send his angel with them to be their very real guide and guard. And they're going to need it. They will not be able to make it safely to their destination. There's going to be a lot of recalculating on that GPS in the years to come. They need the God of the covenant to go with them. They need his protection. So God, God's angel is there to guard them along the way. Church, see the mercy of God here. I mean, just think back to what we've seen in the last 10 chapters. We talked about this in our community group this past week, about the, the grumbling that Israel is expressing. His, God's people are in the wilderness, and all they do, it seems, at times, is just complain and grumble and threaten to kill Moses' messenger, his deliverer, Moses. Moses. Or God's uh, deliverer, Moses. And yet, God sends his angel. He remains with his people, stiff-necked as they can be. He commits to sending this messenger to guard them and bring them to their home. Our God is abundantly merciful. That's not just uh, an expression of God that we find in the New Testament in Christ. It's right back here in the law, believe it or not. He soups down to his people and recognizes our need. He is not a distant deity. He is a present guardian. Dear Christian, I wonder, have you forgotten that this past week? Have you gone about your days anxiously trying to control your life? Avoid collateral damage. Protect the things you value. Striving, losing sleep over that, forgetting that God has promised to be the guard and guide of his people. Christian, run to your guardian and your fear of the future. He goes with you. God guides. Second, God conquers. So there in verse 22, Yahweh tells Moses that if Israel obeys, then he will be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversaries. Verse 23, he says he will blot them out. Verse 27, he promises, I will send my terror before you and I'll throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Verse 31, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Okay, so who's doing the driving out? It's Israel for sure, but ultimately behind it all, it's Yahweh who's making war. Yahweh who's bringing catastrophe on these nations, ensuring his people will possess the land he has promised to give them. This rings true of what we read back in chapter 15 a few months back when Israel sang a song of praise to Yahweh. Remember for his deliverance from the Red Sea? And they sang, the peoples have heard, and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling, Seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. And God reiterates that promise. He will send terror. He will send panic upon the nations of Canaan to bring his people in and fulfill his promise. This is his work. Even the hornets, forces of nature, will serve at the will of their creator, commander. Church, God is not to be trifled with. We said that last week and we say it again. His will is accomplished. His power is not rivaled. Even his wisdom is on display here as he promises to give his people the land little by little so they aren't overwhelmed by a land that's suddenly desolate and empty and hard to subdue. God, as conqueror, reminds us that God is able to be trusted. He accomplishes what he plans. His strength cannot be overcome. He will never be defeated. You know, there's always talk on the news or in our world about world power, right? Who's on top? Who's got the weapons? Who's the real head honcho? Whose army will need to be reckoned with on the world stage? But with God, church, there's no question. Pundits have no material on that. Because he always wins. There is no rival. But as I was reading this kind of middle section of this passage this past week, I I don't know about you, but I was thinking, what about those nations? And Canaan, right? I mean, we know from the, the, these chapters here in the Pentateuch, that means the five first books of the Bible, that Yahweh has covenanted to love Israel. And that covenant love is not because of anything inherently good or worthy in Israel. But it's God's sovereign grace in choosing a weak people through whom to display his love and salvation to the world. Okay, so great. But what about these other nations? Are they dealt a bad hand here? Is this unjust of God to, to execute an invasion like this? There's a lot that could be said here, but let me give you two basic things to think about. First thing, no one is neutral with God. No one is neutral with God. So if you're here this morning and you're, you claim to kind of be agnostic about God, whether he exists or if he does exist, what he's like. So you might be not sure what he's like, but you think you'll be fine with him as long as he fits your criteria for what he should be like. Well, just so you know, the, the Christian Bible makes it clear that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are with God and those who are against God. There is no neutrality. There's no word Switzerland in the Bible. So you may remember George W. Bush uh, addressing uh, the United States a week or so after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And he said something that's become a famous line now. He said, every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. His, his point was kind of clear, if you're, he's saying if you're not on the side of freedom, of war on terrorism, then you're on the side of the terrorists. And regardless of your political affiliation or opinion of what happened after 9-11, it, we can understand that point, that galvanizing point. And I think we must understand that on an even more serious scale, that God says the same thing. You are either with him or you are with his enemies. So when we read of God's war, all-out war on these Canaanite nations, we must remember the question ultimately isn't why he's judging them. The real question is why he isn't judging Israel. We all deserve judgment for our sin. In our sin, we are all God's enemies, and yet he has shown mercy to those whom he has chosen to show mercy. And that's humbling. So first, no one is neutral with God. Second thing to remember as we think about that passage and that idea of invasion in Canaan is that this passage in Exodus 23 is set in a particular context and time. So that's why it, it can be unhelpful and maybe even dangerous to kind of lazily plop open your Bible in the morning at random and just immediately draw immediate application from whatever, whatever it says To whatever part of your life you want insight for that day. Because the Bible is not just kind of a piecemeal wisdom book that you create meaning in. The Bible's a story, the Bible's a narrative. It it has a beginning, it has a building tension and a plot line, it has different settings and time periods. And here, 3,500 years ago, Israel is a theocracy. So they're a nation governed directly by God and directly given permission and directly given authorization by God himself, by his voice, to execute his judgment on pagan nations that do not worship him. No such theocracy exists today. Not even America, folks. As one friend helped me see recently, this covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai is just a, it's just a chapter in a much grander story, a story culminating in Christ when he will beckon and invite all nations to come to him. The pastor, Tony Marita writes uh, about this, and he kind of writes about the, the promises of blessing. Do you see Those you will not miscarry you will be prosperous in a lot of ways the modern christian church has really distorted views like that it says that if you do obey god he will give you all the money and treasures and prosperity you want and some of passages like this are used in that way and so he talks about those promises and then i think we can apply it also to his judgment and say what he says he tony marita says this understand this word of caution God has given these promises for a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. He goes on to show that we have an even better promise and an even better promised land. I think this is a reminder, church, to read the Bible in context. God is conqueror. And that theme kind of. builds and matures and deepens and widens as scripture progresses, like any good storyteller does. And it kind of ultimately is is fulfilled in the conqueror, in Jesus Christ, who conquers, as we sang before, sin, death, hell, and Satan forever for his people. All right, so God guides, God conquers, finally, God commands. And I think, as I meditated on this passage this past week, it appeared to me that this was kind of the main point of this passage. There's a lot of things that Yahweh talks about, but I, I think this idea of God commanding service is kind of the main point. And so I want to make that the main emphasis as we close this sermon. That that's actually our desire every single Sunday here at Louden Valley. So we don't want to come to the Bible as we're prone to do with our own agenda and, and sort of try to make God's word fit our Soapbox for the week. No, we want to come to God's word and let His word set the agenda for what we say and do. And so the main thing that has popped out to me is this idea that God commands, and specifically He commands, exclusive service to Him. And do you see that? The, this book of the covenant, spanning from chapter 20 midway to the beginning of the few verses we'll look at next week, is all about his instructions and rules for his people. And now as he's kind of laid out these laws for them, towards the end of his speech now to Moses, he says, pay attention. Obey. Do not rebel. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. Verse 32, you shall not make or make no covenant with them and their gods, speaking of those Canaanite lands. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Yahweh looks ahead to the promised land and he tells his covenant people to live out their status as covenanted to him. In other words, they must serve their king. That's part of what it means to live out the terms of the covenant. Obeying their sovereign Lord. I, I mean, I wrestled, as I always do in the Old Testament, with these if-then clauses. Do you ever do that? So, if Israel obeys, then God will bless. If Israel follows him, then he will give prosperity. He promises these things in response to their obedience. It seems that way, right? And I think, as New Covenant, New Testament believers, that can sound sort of anti-grace to our ears. It can sound like Israel, Israel's salvation is kind of based on their merits. And I, I think there's two things to be careful to see here. I, I think at first it, it's careful to see that that's pretty much true. Right? As we'll find out in the coming books of the Bible, they ultimately failed to obey ultimately this book of the covenant was something they trashed ultimately they did not just need better performance but they needed a greater moses to come and keep that covenant perfectly for them in their stead ultimately they needed christ this is something they could never ultimately do but it's important also at the same time to hold this tension To see that when you are in covenant with the Lord, obedience to him is part and parcel of that covenant. It's essential to receiving blessing. This is true for us as Christians, brothers and sisters. In Christ, we don't live just however we want to live. We live for him. We live to serve Him. We live to obey Him. We live for His blessing as we follow Him. Our lives are about Him. So it only makes sense that, that the God who rules over His church is the one who is to be obeyed by His church. I mean, that's just what it means to follow Him. We don't serve other gods. For we have found found salvation in, in Him and Him alone. We've, we've learned and discovered more that his covenant love towards us in Christ is what we need and all we need. This is what we've been saved for. As Israel, we too are God's treasured possession. We belong to him. We've confessed that he's our God and there's none other. We've read in the Ten Commandments how God will not tolerate any rival to our affections and loyalty to him. We've seen how he loves us too much for us to go after other gods. And even more deeply, he is so jealous for his own glory that he will not share it with anyone else. To do so would to be sinful for God. For he alone is truly glorious. So, dear church family, let's not shy away from understanding that as God's people right here, right now, we are called to obedience, to holiness, to loyalty. We've been saved by grace alone, yes and amen, all the time, every day for eternity, but we've been saved to serve. As we've said other times, we haven't been set free to pursue our own glory. Israel wasn't. Israel wasn't set free to go wherever they wanted to go, willy-nilly in the wilderness, setting up their own little kingdoms. They were set free to worship Yahweh. Remember, when Pharaoh kind of gives God's command, or when Moses gives God's commands to Pharaoh, he's saying, let my people go that they might serve me. He has set us free, too, from service to lesser gods and restored us to what we were made to do, to to worship him. And we see that, that truth just echoing throughout Exodus 23. Yahweh warns his people that as they leave Mount Sinai and all its quaking and quivering under the weight of the glory of the presence of Yahweh, as they meet future success in warfare and and conquer other lands and go through Canaan as they learn of their gods. They must be careful to remember the white-hot holiness of the God of Sinai. Those last words in our text this morning are kind of a, a siren of warning. For if you serve their gods, Israel, it will surely be a snare to you. Fast forward to the coming centuries and we see that's exactly the case. Israel does run after other things. And it's their downfall. Only one God is able to satisfy them able to command their allegiance, and it's Yahweh. It's their covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving God. If you're here and you're you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we understand it's kind of uncomfortable sometimes to come to a church gathering like this, so we're really grateful you're you're here, and we hope you feel welcomed. And I wonder if this is a helpful way for you to think about the truth of God's word. Think about this and see if it makes sense of your life. So God says in his word that everybody, Christian or not, has been created to serve something. So it's built into our DNA, right? We are dependent creatures. And so we naturally rely on other things. and We naturally invest value and worship and service into other things. The Bible, though, teaches that in our sin and our rebellion against God, we have decided to, to serve ourselves to serve our own passions and lusts and desires, and we've found over and over again that those pursuits will never fully satisfy us. The Bible calls these pursuits idols. We might call them job promotions, entertainment, money, material possessions, comfort, notoriety, Academic achievement, physical beauty, sexual pleasure, all things we try to serve in order to find fulfillment. I wonder, does that ring true for your life? Have you found complete fulfillment in anything you have pursued? Well, friend, the the Bible would, would urge you to be set free by serving the only one who's worthy to be served the only one who's worthy to be worshipped, and that is God. All other gods, he says, are snares. That is They're, they're traps that, that harm and destroy and maim. Only God gives fullness of joy to those who would serve him. But none of us want to. We all want to serve ourselves. We've all rejected And in his mercy, he did not leave us in that rejection, but he sent his son. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, though he fully deserved all the worship. He served us. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He was tempted as we are without sin. Remember what Jim read for us before from Matthew 4, where the the devil tempts Jesus. How does he tempt him? He tempts him by saying, you don't have to serve God. You can get all this stuff. You can get all this prosperity if you will serve me. Each of us has fallen for that temptation. Jesus did not. He said, it is written, you shall serve God alone. Jesus kept the covenant when we couldn't. And now he has given us new life. To truly serve our God. On the cross, God laid on Jesus the punishment we deserved for our sin, for our self-worship. Our sin deserved death and Jesus took it. So if you will repent of your sin and trust in him, God will forgive you and give you new life. Won't you do that today? And Christian, where are you trapped this morning? ensnared where where has sin appealed to you and then snagged you and trapped you this past week where did you come this sunday morning fighting to break free from where are you tempted to split your loyalty with god and something else One author helpfully defines idols as those things we sin in order to get and sin when they're taken away. So what might that be for you? Good as it may be in and of itself, would you turn from serving it today? From worshiping it? From giving it all your allegiance? Would you again repledge your allegiance to God alone? He will never fail you he is your king he's gonna bring you home let's pray Lord we ask that you forgive us for using our faith in you as a sort of magic potion for life for believing that we can sort of trust in you easily for for blessing but Often forgetting that you have called us, your redeemed people, to serve you. Forgive us for just keeping our faith in our back pocket for when we need it. Lord, help it to inform the way that we live and worship and breathe. We ask that you forgive us for our idols. We repent of them and turn to you. We ask that you would fulfill us in serving you all our days, and we thank you for Jesus, who was a servant for us, and will come again soon as our king. Lord, as we sing this last hymn, a hymn we direct to one another as servants of God, we pray that as our master, we would sing and proclaim your worth as long as we live. In Jesus' name, amen.